You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Yeah, it sounds like we're in a bathroom together. And I hear my own echo, yeah. The only the hardest part about it is you're I'm in my own ear about a second after I talk, right? So it's like throws you off. So this is gonna be good. This is gonna be a good challenge for us, Bracken. Well y'all are like professionals now. You're past the two hundred mark, like Well Subjective. There are people that do a task every single day in their life and never get professional at it. That's true. My my definition of professional is that you have to clear the poverty line off of whatever work you're doing that you call yourself professional for. You're not quite there yet? Y'all are still below the poverty line? Well, we don't we don't monetize the podcast. Are you at work right now? Uh, yes. Yeah? At the famous gym down there? The, well, it's kind of the less famous one, but it's the better one. We have three locations now. So West Columbia is the famous one. I'm mainly at the Lake Jackson one, which is like 20 minutes away. So Shout out the real name so everyone hears it. This is Oh, Grit Fitness. The Grit Fitness. This is the better one because this is the one I'm mostly at, so everybody knows this is the one to come to. Oh, it's not an equipment issue. It's a <laughs> personnel. Yes, it's definitely the personnel. There's better equipment in West Columbia, but, you know, I'm here. So, What, what uh, major metro area are you guys in? Houston, south of Houston. And isn't there Dallas? No, no. We're all, all the locations are south of Houston. Um, the weather here is freezing cold. It is about, I think it's been like 40 for the past three days, and <laughs> it's frigid. I'm telling you, 40 hits different down here. I was just in Chicago over the weekend. Granted, like teens, 20s is cold. It's different down here. It is unbearable. Life is hard. I, there's something to that. I've, I used to, We used to race in Glenrose every year. There was either a championship or a team championship or just a big money race, and it was always in the somewhere between the high 20s and low 40s, and it's extremely cold. So cold. I'm you're so you can agree. Like it hits different. I don't think it hits different. I think it's just that you maybe it hits different because you expect it to be warmer. <laughs> like right now, yesterday it was uh, when I got up, it was negative seven without wind chill, and I had to get a credit card out of our van, and so I ran out there in bare feet and a t-shirt, and I thought, dressed like this, no matter how hard I work, I bet I've got two hours before I die. That's probably a lot of the problem too. That. Is we don't we don't know how to dress, so we're dressed about as well as that in forty degrees, and it's a no go. You would not live two hours in negative seven degrees. You'd die in like twenty minutes, like a baby. If I made it my sole purpose to survive, I could make it two hours before. I think up to two hours before I die. I would have to like cover my genitals and run as fast as I possibly could, well, and I... just keep myself warm for as long as possible, and then I'd end up. <laughs> my genitals were covered. <laughs> Well, you I wasn't gotta, just wearing a t-shirt. <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> no, I had bare feet and a t-shirt. I had, I think, uh, like sweatpants on. Ah, shucks. I pictured you standing outside. I ran out to my car <laughs> in just a t-shirt? I've heard weirder things, Bracken. I mean, just the visual of an adult man wearing <laughs> nothing but a t-shirt is a, a, a terrible... No man should ever wear just a... Like, if you have to wear, as a guy, one piece of clothing t-shirt's not the thing you should choose <laughs> running around like a four-year-old kid who just took his diaper off i think you're uh how close to the door am i analogy is what gets me i i guess one more added piece to this that i don't know if either of you know i park my van in my parents driveway 
which is the house next door, and our backyard is City Hall. So I'd be running past all the powers that be in our nation <laughs> of our city <laughs> to my next door neighbors wearing just a T-shirt. And that's that complicates the situation. It's, it's not off, like it's an attached garage that I'm running into. <laughs> this is off to a good start. Um, so, Chris, <laughs> back to you. How did this all come to be? You guys were together this weekend in Chicago and chatting came up? Yes. I mean, yeah, that's the first time. I don't know if I've ever even been at a, the same race as, at either of y'all before. It felt like I know you because I've watched you race so often. And I've listened and to your podcast And commented several enough. of your races. Yeah. But And I saw you in person and realized I actually don't know what you look like if you're not, like, grainy and pixelated. <laughs> that's amazing. So how'd it go for you this weekend before we, like, go back? Um, this weekend was fantastic. Um, it was... I spent a lot of time, I just did High Rocks uh, like three months ago in November in Dallas. And so I spent a lot of time kind of doing a little bit of the comparison thing. Um, Dallas uh, was kind of a terrible race for me. Um, I was incredibly weak and everything hurt the entire time. Um, so it's, it wasn't hard to improve on that, but it was still really good to like feel a lot of improvement. Um, so yeah, um, I improved my time. So my third time doing it now. So I've improved my time pretty drastically each time. Uh, this is my first sub one ten, which is not super common for the women. No, if you break one seventeen, you're one of the probably 10 to 12 best in the country. And if you break one ten, you're one of the top three to five. I... I don't know. I did 117 my first time, and I was definitely not top 12. At the championship last year, 117 would put you right around top 10. Well, then I've been in the wrong places at the wrong times, because 117 was my very first time like two years ago, and then I got a 114 in Dallas. What place were you at each one? Um, in uh, the very first one I did, I actually I ran an extra lap, um, but I think I landed in seventh. And then in Dallas, I was in fourth and then I was fourth again here, but fourth in Dallas and fourth in Chicago, I'm going to say, are kind of different. Definitely. Kind mm-hmm. of a different field. Okay. What do you what do you attribute, uh, what, eight minutes? If you had to just give us some bullet points, what is it? Eight minutes improvement. In how long? I've been into fitness for two years longer. Um, I got stronger and I got faster. Now, Dallas to here is only three months. Right. So you can make tangible strength gains in three months, but... Was it more of just channeling your strength better for the stations, being able to use it? Was there some efficiency, or did you actually just get more powerful? Def- maybe a little bit more efficiency, but also a lot more power. Um, going into Dallas, I just come off of like a lot of ultra races and like zero strength. Um, I was almost the weakest I've ever been. I'll normally like when I do an ultra, I'll kind of lose five pounds, and then I'll normally gain it back like within the next week. But I'd been down five pounds for like two months and could not get it to stick on. Um, I wasn't trying super hard. Um, but one of the biggest things I noticed in Dallas is like, not just like my legs were tired and I was having a hard time breathing, like every part of my body ached, like my arms hurt, like on the wall balls. That was the biggest problem is my arms couldn't hold the wall ball up, which was really pathetic, but it was a huge, like, it was, it was huge. It was like a really like rough race for me, but it was also really cool. Cause I was like, okay, there's so much room for improvement mm-hmm. here. Like so much more that like, you know, things that I should not be struggling on, I'm struggling on and. It won't happen again, basically. Now, Kirk, you haven't done a high rocks. Nope. And you've done all the components of a high rocks, as I'm assuming Chris had prior to hers and I had prior to mine, and I'd done a little bit of training for it. 
everything stacks up. You talk about weather in Texas hitting differently. Everything hits different in high rocks because everything stacks. Like that first skier, if you're not an efficient skier, it doesn't feel bad. But suddenly later on, your core and your traps are smoked. And you're like, where did that come from? And you get to wall balls at the end and your shoulders won't lift up and your forearms won't work. And you're like, how did this possibly go? It's the first one hits different. And then you go and realize, I didn't train at all correctly for that. Yeah. But Kirk, since we're going to eventually do a doubles and go after the men's mm-hmm. doubles, you've got to get a bad one out of the way first. That's fair. I feel like you could sort of get a bad one out of the way in training if you really put it together right. But nothing simulates the race, does it? Which one are y'all going to go for doubles at? That's just a theoretical. Are we announcing this? We've just been chatting about it. <laughs> He's on a doubles high right now. Yeah. I Every time I do it, I think doubles would be so fun. <laughs> Singles is miserable, and I think, man, if I did this as a double, especially, I will say after we did DecaFit like the weekend before, and they introduced their new, de- their new, uh, what do you call it, like his team, Deca team, and doing it with a team, I was like, this is the best thing I've ever done. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've never really done anything team before, but I've fought it every time with High Rocks, and after doing it at Deca, like, I need, I need, team is 100% the way to go. I think we should be clear that I'm only doing doubles because I'm not good enough to do regular DECA. It's too heavy. You spend the entire high rocks. the entire high rocks trying not to tip over, trying not to work too hard. Like how hard in, in doubles you don't have to do that. You just constantly tip over and then rest. And that's way more fun for me. Definitely. I can agree with that. Not to uh, backtrack, but did you just say you got into fitness two years ago? Did I hear that right? No, uh... You said something about two years ago. ago. Oh, only four. Okay, how old are you? 25. 25. So you didn't really get into fitness until like 21, huh? Yeah, I didn't really do anything until I was like 18. And then the fitness kind of happened at 20, 20, 21. Um, And then since then, I mean, I have a lot of room for growth. Now we're we're coming pretty blind into this. Like I said, we met for the first time, what, four days ago, five days ago? Yeah. Had I had to, like, choose a, like, if I was an FBI profiler for you, looking at the way you run and the things you're good at, I would have guessed you were one of those 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 athletes who grew up into sport, like, born into sport, doing everything under the sun, like, your parents had you out doing every activity constantly, and you ran all through middle school and high school and did all these ball sports and trained constantly so that when you graduated, you just hit the ground running. And I think I would have been entirely inaccurate. Well, I don't think you could be more inaccurate. Wow. How does like a talent like that (laughs) stay hidden? Nobody is like, hey, Chris, look how fast you are on the playground. Hey, Chris, you move so naturally across the monkey bars. You should think about doing something. Like you just went under the radar that whole time. Well, the answer is really simple. Um, I was homeschooled. So I just kind Mm. of grew up under... I was, like, really, really isolated homeschooled, so I would say, like, I didn't just grow up under a rock. I was kind of, like, under a pile of rocks, and it just took me a couple years to kind of crawl out, so. We got to dive into that. I grew up in a strange world in that we were, like, we had feet in both realms. We were in every sport known to man. My sister left home at 13 to go to an Olympic training center. We just did everything, super social, but at the same time, my parents like had a foot in the other realm where we ordered all of our food from a buying club. So a semi-truck came and dropped off all of our food in our driveway, and like 30 families came in and picked up their food. And most of them were homeschooled. And the kids that came out were 
never seen the light of day and they didn't know how to talk to you. They didn't know how to interact. Was that you? Were you that kid who came in with their pants four inches too short and couldn't look anyone in the eye? Um, um, maybe a little bit worse even. I was definitely, I was very, very shy as a child. Um, we were like very, very conservative, like this subculture of a subculture. Which culture? Um, it's a, I mean, it's a, like a Christian homeschooling culture, but this is like mm-hmm. a kind of like an extreme version where it's like, okay, Christians are great. Homeschooling's fine, but why'd you have to take it so far? Um, so just kind of like the most extreme version of everything. Um, I will say, I mean, it was absolutely with like best intentions. I had a great childhood, but it was just a very, uh, non-traditional, um, and so I actually grew up wearing like skirts and dresses my entire life until I was kind of like late teens. Cause that was long skirts, long dresses sleeved. Yep. That's the little Chris for how long? Um, basically I was about 17, 18. I kind of got my first job when I was 17 and was like, Oh, people don't really dress like this. And it's not really work. doesn't really work for everyday life super well. Um, and then yeah, 18, I moved out when I was 19 kind of took a couple years to kind of branch out and become myself. What was a typical day and week like? Like, were you part of a commune or were you just on a ranch somewhere or your home sequestered? Yeah. So we, there was a, the community is like solely through church. Um, so like church, Sunday church was like a big deal. Everybody sent, spent all day at church. Um, and we were definitely in a kind of larger community of homeschoolers. So in some ways it was like, there's definitely like our community culture, but we actually grew up, um, I grew up like north of San Antonio. Um, we had five acres and we were just kind of on our own out there. Um, yeah, church was really the only time we saw people. What denomination were you or are you? I don't know if that's changed yet. Yeah, it was like non-denominational. Um, my mm-hmm. parents, my dad, uh, was a pastor and went to seminary before getting into this. This was kind of, I kind of call it a cult is honestly a little cultish. Um, we didn't last very long in it, but we were in it for like some of those, like, I would say kind of like key years. Um, so my dad comes from like a, um, he, uh, was a pastor, went to seminary and he never really like super agreed with entirely one denomination. So it was like non-denominational, um, mm-hmm. but just kind of, I mean, Christian was basically what they would call it. Yeah. But to the far end of the spectrum, the yes. sun up to sundown Sunday service. Yes, 100%. Um, I, neither of my parents have ever drank alcohol. Um, I don't think they've ever used a swear word, like, pretty, like, hardcore. I have a lot of respect for them because they definitely, like, went all in on it, and that's all them. I don't know if it's really, like, the best culture to raise kids in. Like, there's a little bit of, like, you know, if they want to choose that, that's fantastic. But I think you should give kids the chance to, like, you know, maybe know what the real world is like a little bit more. Um, but, Yeah. They're, they were definitely 100% committed, and we grew up in that committed world. Well, Bracken, Bracken asked what a day would be like, and I'm actually very curious, like sun up to sundown, non-Sunday type day. Like, what would that look like? There were a lot of us kids. Um, How many? You have to quantify that. Yeah. <laughs> there, there were eight of us. Okay. Where do you fall on the eight? I'm number four. Okay. Um, so, yeah, kind of in the middle. Um, we were thankfully there's a lot of people like in that culture that were kind of like, uh, education is overrated. Real life experience is better. And they say that as they're in this like really sub sub culture, which is interesting. Um, but thankfully my parents were like big on edu- yeah, like, basic education life, in quotes. Yeah. There's some irony there. <laughs> my parents were really big on edu- or, you know, decently big on education. Um, my mom stayed home. 
dad worked, um, so mom homeschooled all of us. Um, but we had like a pretty structured, um, we'd have to get up by seven. My sister and I would make breakfast. We'd start school. I was just thinking about, it. I don't know if we'd start school at, like eight or eight thirty, but it was a pretty like, um, and we had like all our basic subjects. It was a lot of it was kind of self-taught. We just kind of worked through books and thankfully all of us were decently smart. So, I mean, none of us are, you know, total dummies. Um, <laughs> So we, we like, did okay on the education side, but we were real big on we'd knock out our school as fast as possible. We'd eat lunch, and then, like, afternoon was when the little kids took naps, and we were, like, free. So that was definitely we – I have a sister just older than me and a sister just younger than me, and we would spend as soon as we could. As soon as we were done with school chores, we were outside, playing outside, like, the entire rest of the afternoon, preferably out of earshot from mom so she couldn't, like, call us in to get something. Uh, to do work, whatever. Um, so we kind of had, our neighborhood was, we had five acres, and pretty much everybody around us had five acres, and it was a lot of, like, retired people. So we would do a lot of, like, fence hopping and kind of roaming through other people's backyards. There was, like, this exotic deer place. Um, anyway, so that was definitely, I mean, a typical day. We would spend the entire rest of the afternoon outside um, just climbing around. We'd build, like, rock forts and rope swings and just kind of be kids, which was pretty cool. So 50% of your day was the ideal childhood. 100%. Mm -hmm. I I mean, yeah, pretty much all of it. Like, we didn't – I remember, like, at some point I realized, like, wait, people get up and have to, like, put on nice clothes every day and go to school? Because we – I mean, we'd get up and get dressed, but, like, just wear the same ratty clothes all the time and didn't care. And I was like, people have to get up every day. (laughs) And we'd see the school bus go by, and we're always like, man, it's so early. Um, Yeah, it was was pretty great. It was pretty great as a childhood. I have a lot of, like – as a teenager, it was less than ideal, but honestly, for a child, like, up until you're, like, 10, 11 years old, like, it's pretty great. Um, part of that, too, is, like, my dad played soccer and ice hockey um, as a kid. I think those are kind of the two main ones. So we played uh, – he had – all the boys did a soccer league at some point. wasn't a thing for the girls because we, mm-hmm. you know, were in our dresses. But we would play soccer. We had, like, a volleyball net up. So we'd kind of, you know – kick the ball around. My sister and I would play volleyball like all summer one summer, just back and forth over the net for hours. Um, we got a basketball hoop at one point, so we played like knockout for hours. Um, pretty much anything we did is just like... I suppose if you have eight kids, you have uh, enough people to play knockout at any time. Yeah, normally somebody to hang out with, somebody to play with. Um, so we definitely like, you know, active outside. Um, that, that was kind of like our escape from, you know, the parents and the structure. Um, yeah, uh, high school was a bit different. I think like we kind of got introduced on it. I think almost all of us got introduced to like computers at like 13, 14 ish. And then a lot of us just spent a lot of time browsing, playing games, being dumb and like wasting a ton of time. And we'd still like have to do our school. Um, but we'd use like, Oh, well, you know, I have a paper to write, so I'm going to get on the computer for hours and hours. So I feel like a lot of my like teenage years were spent like wasting also we found like youtube and so part of it too was we didn't watch any tv or a lot of movies growing up so there was a lot of we started finding like i found or we found on youtube like just a bunch of classic disney movies that we had never seen and i don't even know i couldn't really find them now but we ate that up we were like this is so it was kind of like an introduction to culture in some ways um and a lot of that was under the radar like we weren't really allowed to do that but kind of sneak it in um So I feel like a lot of teen years were kind of spent, like, finishing up school. There was never really – mom 
really didn't have the skill set to like homeschool us through high school. She didn't really know what she was doing. So there was, we did like online classes. Um, and then there was a lot of just self-taught or just kind of figuring it out and like, eh, that works. And then there was a lot of, they couldn't decide if like you have to take the SAT or once you've completed all your books. And I was like, at 17, I was basically like, look, I've done all the books you've given me. I started nannying for this family and I was like, I want to go make money and I'm done with school. So that was my end of my education. I just kind of quit. Did you discover online communication? Were you starting to interact with the outside world socially? Um, sort of, but only within our like homeschool friends. Like, yeah. So we definitely had, I mean, I didn't get a Facebook until I guess I was 17 or 18. Um, but we had our Google profiles and I think we'd like chat with our friends. We had, so a lot of, again, a lot of people like in this community were super, super isolated. And we had a little bit more of, we would like travel. We'd go and visit my parents' family. We'd go and visit like friends. Um, they had different conferences with kind of weird stuff but we kind of like made our way around and made friends kind of like around the country and um in other places so i'd say we definitely had more like friends than other people did but it was still a very i mean i don't you know still very you know controlled and very isolated as a general rule is your dad's side the minnesota ties yes Okay. Well, I did a little research on you before we hopped on the call, and I saw that you uh, were in Minnesota with family. And then you said your dad played hockey, and I was like, there can't be a lot of hockey going on in Texas. So Yeah. Okay. Where do they live in Minnesota? Well, he um, he was born and raised, I think, near um, – or he was born in St. Paul's Big Bear Lake, I think, is where he kind of grew up. White Bear Lake? Yes, that one. Yeah, White that Bear one. Lake. Okay. That's right. Yeah, not far from me. Okay. Yeah. And then, but he actually, he moved out to, his whole family pretty much moved out to Arizona when he was in high school. And Arizona is where my parents met, Texas. So my sister now lives in Minnesota, but that's entirely disconnected from where my dad grew up. Um, oh, she's like on the there. Got it. South Dakota border. So yeah, she is back in Minnesota, but not really through family ties. Did your parents both bring this set of values to the marriage or did one side really drive it it was both um I would say my mom probably drove it more which is just kind of like um they were they were both pretty into it mom I think liked the ideal of like this happy family that just spends time together and like we're all happy and you know that I think really drew her in I think my dad really liked like the um again the ideal of like not um I guess, like, just more time spent, like, learning about God, mm-hmm. Christianity, that kind of thing. Um, and they were both, I, I don't really, I wonder sometimes, I don't think there was any, like, significant something that happened in their past, something that happened in their life that made them think, like, okay, we went out of the world and into this little subculture. It was just kind of a, like, it was a, you know, fairly calculated, like, we like this concept, and then things went really south for our family. Well, yeah the cultish stuff got to be kind of too much. And we actually got like kicked out, like excommunicated. And that's when there was a lot of like, Oh, that doesn't work so well. So I still have two siblings still at home and they live a much more, you know, normal life, uh, Hmm. play sports, go to school, that kind of stuff. Well, I certainly want to get into this excommunication, (laughs) (laughs) but, but first was this more of a Bible based non-denominational community? Okay, so that means the woman is the weaker vessel. They are a second-class citizen. You're not really expected to work. You're expected to wife 
and parent and homestead. So what was the expectation for you and your two sisters in this community? Like you're going to homeschool through 17 and then what? Like what, what is that transition point for you? Yeah. Um, college is a big like there's no point in college because you're never going to use it. Uh, the goal is to get mm-hmm. married and start having kids. Like that's kind of – and my parent. I've talked to my parents about this and they're like, oh, that was never like our plan – Apparently they never like spoke out against it, but they never, or they never spoke out for it, but they definitely never spoke out against it. And that's definitely kind of the ideal. I have one sister that kind of did that, like did the whole get married. She's got two kids and like, good for her. None of the rest of us have done that. And that's just kind of, you know. Was that talked about? Was was there a, a system in place for finding a husband or were you expected to like, all right, go find it and come back? Oh, no. It's actually, so that's another really weird thing here is actually like the parents are supposed to be really involved in finding a spouse and not only super involved in like finding it, but making sure it's a good match and making sure that the whole relationship is run correctly. We kind of, I have two older brothers and they dipped out kind of as soon as they turned 18. They were like, we're out. That's huge for you. Someone has to break Mm -hmm. out first. Yes. And that was huge. Less than ideal circumstances as definitely, I mean, it's kind of been a mess, um, but they're, I mean, yeah, my older brothers are great. And um, because they kind of broke out, that definitely kind of made us slightly ostracized because we, my parents, like, couldn't keep all the kids together. Um, and that made us a little more, I think, instead of just buying into the whole concept of, like, oh, God will find your spouse or, you're, you know, you'll meet them through other families. Like, it's, I know, I mean, I got, I, like, had my first boyfriend when I was eight. 19 I think and I told my dad I was like look I want you to like him but I don't really want you involved and my parents were Mm -hmm. at the point where they were like yeah you're over 18 you do what you want and um, that's kind of uh, I don't think my parents really had a plan had an idea Um, it's probably overwhelming having a bunch of kids that they had to try to kind of help out somehow figure something out Um, and without any without I guess you know there wasn't the typical like oh you go to high school, you get scholarships, you go to college, and then you figure out from there. It was just kind of this, like, well, 18, they're technically adults, but they're really not probably prepared to be adults, and we kind of have to go from there. So is there, like, um, I don't know if I'm asking this right, but, like, an unspoken disappointment when 18 comes and the children choose not to go right down the path that your parents chose is there is that like a thing or is that not a thing like they expect you to go and pave your own way in the world it's a pretty loudly spoken um when my oldest brother first oh, yes. okay yeah there was a lot now and it was very less than ideal circumstances like it was very intertwined with this cult church that we'd been in so it was more than just my brother but mm. it's also very much my brother um that was a very, and they actually put a lot of pressure on my next oldest brother, like, okay, that's what he chose, but you're going to, like, choose better. And he tried real hard, and then it's kind of like, yeah, I need some space. Um, and then with us girls, is, I mean, my older sister is the next one, and she, real quiet, tame, like, just kind of, I, I was the very, like, I got my license before her, I got jobs before her, like, I was definitely the one, like, ready to go, and she's just kind of, you know, laid back. So it worked for her. Because I think she's just laid back. The rest of us are not. When you hear the word cult, it seems very black and white. Like, that is a cult, or that's not culty. But, like, it's not a on and off switch. It's like a dimmer bulb. And it's really hard to tell that the light's getting dimmer until suddenly you're in the dark. Hmm. So where on that scale was this church you're talking about that was culty? 
Um, I would say, I mean, cults are basically where, I mean, everybody unites around a unique idea, a certain concept, a certain idea. So cults, like, they always say, like, nobody decides to be in a cult, uh, you, like, or nobody, like, is forced to be in a cult. You choose to be in it. So like you said, it's kind mm-hmm. of that, where you're like, oh, this is good, and then you kind of realize, like, it's less than good. Um, this was, um, because of the, um, religious, uh, uh, what do you, I guess, like, the religious influence, like, there's a huge moral, um, there's, there's a huge moral aspect to it where it involves morality and your religion and, like, these core principles where it wasn't just based off of, like, oh, well, we all act this way. And that's why most cults are religious because it involves that moral, that, that religious side, the moral side of things where if you don't do what we are doing, you're morally wrong. And that was Mm -hmm. what a lot of this was, where if you, I mean, like birth control. If you choose to use birth control, that's like morally wrong. Like that's against what God says. If you, you know, um, women working was a big like women aren't supposed to work. It's this, and it's this weird thing about like women aren't supposed to be under the authority of any man except for their husband. Like I'm like, where'd you get that? Like we're not living way back in like Bible times. Like this is modern day America. Um, anyway, so it's it's those things where they put these, you know. If you're not doing this, you're wrong, and you're, like, sinning, mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, you can still be a Christian and do these kinds of things. Um, and then the biggest thing is where it starts to centralize around one person, and that's another, like, big thing. And there was a guy that this all started to centralize around, um, and that was ended up being the downfall because through a series of events that my brother was involved in, it came out that he was, like, sleeping with his nanny, and that's when it kind of... But we got kicked out because, yeah... Um, anyways, so... Now, you don't have to go into anything you don't want to. Yeah. But any, as far as you want to go into this, we're here. <laughs> well... <laughs> don't feel pressure one way or the other. I, I want to wedge in a quick question about that with your older brother. So if one member of the family were to, like, strongly do something that was disapproved, that means, like, everybody's everybody's kind of out? No. No. It's definitely like get rid of that one, the black sheep, and everybody else is good. Uh, but the problem was there was another person in this church that was the bigger problem than my brother, and my parents tried to confront that. And because that person had information on the big leader guy, we were the ones that got kicked out because we were the ones that were kind of like starting to expose, or my parents were starting to like expose stuff. Um, so it's because. My parents actually tried to, like, fix the issue, which was a real modern-day issue. Uh, We got excommunicated and got kicked out. Um, Yeah, but as a general rule, if one person messes up, like, oh, ditch them. Like, there's still a lot of respect for the people they're still in. Okay, and we're going to bring this back to sport. Don't worry. Let's do it. (laughs) But this is just such, like, we don't have this conversation every day. Maybe you do, but Bracken and I certainly don't, so it's super, super interesting. So after then... How old were you then? So that all kind of blew up when I was, I think I was like 13-ish. So kind of from the ages of like 8 to 13, we were really involved in this group. Um, we got kicked out of that, and my parents didn't really know where to go. We kind of like, I'm kind of church hopped, because I mean, church is where's our way of connecting with people. And it sounds like your whole community as well. Yeah, 100%. There was, yeah. that, And you would meet through other churches, but yeah, it was, church was definitely the focal point um yeah so that all kind of blew up when I was 13 and that was kind of the beginning of starting to kind of move on um 
I guess the church we ended up going to, there were slightly more normal people. They would still wear skirts and dresses all the time, but they actually had this, like, soccer night where everybody would get together on Friday night and play soccer, and they were wearing pants, which uh, was a big stretch at first, but started to become more normalized. Um, so, we, you know, these people were still homeschoolers, still, like, you know, compatible, but also kind of a, you know, a little bit less weird, <laughs> um, or less, you know, isolated. Um, Are you being politically correct there? Um, <laughs> Going from I'm less trying. weird to less, you're doing a good job. I just, I want to acknowledge you're doing a nice job there. Because, uh, I mean, I was, I mean, homeschoolers aren't all weird. They're odd, but honestly, I think they have a lot more going for them than a lot of other people. So weird isn't a problem. It's the isolated thing that is more of a problem. So our kids are a little weird in a good we way, right? Yeah. So, so was, do you think that was maybe one of the, using the terms like kicked out sounds harsh, but like, was that maybe one of the, looking back, one of the better things that happened to your like forward trajectory? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, okay. Because, I mean, it all started, it all ended up, that whole community fell apart in the next, like, three to four to five years. But us getting, like, a, I mean, yeah, it was obviously a hard moment. But us getting abruptly out gave us a whole lot less to deal with than a lot of mm-hmm. other people that kind of had to, you know, slowly pull themselves out. So Kirk and I both grew up playing a lot of sports and dreaming of what came next. We were dreaming of college scholarships and being professional athletes and then what job we're going to do, what we're going to study. Was there any sort of life goal dream or did that not kick in until suddenly like that cult piece was removed slightly? Yeah, it kicked in even a couple years after the cult thing was removed. So you're like 15, 16 before you started thinking about what was next. Well, even then I was like, even though the cult thing was gone, there was still like the kind of unspoken expectation like oh well you're gonna get married and you're gonna have kids like that's what women are created to do you're supposed to get married and have kids raise your kids whatever like that was the 100% expectation I think almost what changed it for me started to change it and this was the beginning change um was at 18 I was like I want to get a like a job I had been nannying and that was a great job but I was like ready to go on to something else the only things I knew how to do I knew I like wanted to work with horses and then I like did house cleaning because those were two things I could do. Um, but it was the working with horses that I started cleaning stalls at this local barn. Um, and then through them got connected with another barn. Um, and I think that was the first time where I was, I kind of started finding the piece of like, I like to work hard and be active outside. Um, that it kind of, it kind of brought out the more, I guess, like, less domesticated, slightly more wild side. Um, and then that was what actually, that was what actually got me like into Spartans too. I moved out East to work with horses and that was where I kind of started up doing Spartans and really finding like the competitive side of Spartans. Um, when did you leave home? I moved out like 20 minutes away, but to the barn that I worked out, I think on my 19th birthday. Was that a big issue or was that kind of a, 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 a normal transition to only go 20 minutes and to do something that they at least were aware of what you're doing? It was not a normal transition. They were, I mean, I say this, they were starting to lose control already because my younger sister is even like more, um, ready to move on than me. So by the time I was 19, she was like 17. She was really, really like ready to get moving. Um, I had already, been spending a lot of time there. I picked up like two other jobs. I basically like 
I worked all the time. And so it was already to the point where they weren't seeing me a lot. Um, I would stay over there at the barn. I would just like sleep on the couch, um, just because I was there late and I had to feed the horses first thing in the next morning. So it was kind of a, it was a slightly gradual tra- transition, but then it was when I finally was like, okay, kind of packed all my things in my truck and was like, I'm kind of out. Um, it was, it was still, I mean, they knew the people I was working for. There was definitely some level of acceptance. Um, I would go over there. They tried to have this, you know, family dinner every Sunday night and I would go over and like get all the leftovers, <laughs> take them with me. Um, so, so that, that was, that was a, um, I mean, at that point we were kind of beyond the cult thing and more to like trying to navigate adult children with parents. Um, and there wasn't any really like, Oh yes, that's a great idea. Or no, that's a terrible idea. I was just kind of, I'm going. And how long were you there before you went to the East coast? Um, I was there for about six months and then I got connected with a really big like show barn out in Virginia. And that was, so it was about six months later that I went out to Virginia I want to backtrack really quick before we get too far ahead of ourselves because this story I want to keep hearing, but I want to have one question that I've been trying to wedge in here. Um, and that is, I don't understand the dynamic like growing up with sport or activity, like what the opportunities were or weren't growing up as like a woman in that culture or a girl in that culture. Just so I understand like what your exposure really looked like. Initially it was about zero. Uh, actually part of the cult thing was like, they were real big on girls and, and boys not, like, interacting. Not so for a while. My parents never had a problem with it, but there were a lot of other families that, like, you couldn't even ta- play tag with boys because, like, girls aren't supposed to touch boys and boys aren't supposed to touch girls. Just, like, <laughs> such a weird concept. Um, so it was really, I mean, so the guys could play games and the girls could play games, but obviously most of the girls were a lot more, like, domesticated and, like, didn't really feel like doing it. Um isn't that just the worst term for a human? Domesticated. <laughs> it's pretty messed up. That's an animal term. Yeah. That's awful. So, yeah, there was really, like, no... Uh, volleyball, I guess, was the only one that was, like, an authorized one because nobody had to touch anybody, so that was a good one. Um, so we would play volleyball with friends. Um, all of it was very much just a, like, oh, get together with friends and play... Um, one church that we started going to, everybody would, like, bring a change of clothes and play basketball afterwards. Again, like, knockout. I never really understood the game side of it, but knockout was easy enough. There were no, like, organized, like, church leagues or, hey, everybody who is homeschooled in this realm has opportunities with these sports, nothing like that? No, not really. And okay. definitely not in the world we were in. I'm sure there were, but that was not something. I will, something that I'm still a pretty bitter about because I tried to change it. Um, was the older, my old, two older brothers, my dad put them in soccer and they played soccer for like several years and my dad would like coach and they were on the little league thing, whatever. Um, that was like not even considered for my sisters and I, and then I have two younger brothers and for them, as soon as they were like six, seven, eight, it was like, Oh, let's find them a soccer league. And when we started, they started going to soccer league. I think I was like 12 or 13 and I was like, 12 is the oldest age. Like I could be on a soccer team. And it was literally like, they were like, oh, you can, like, help coach the boys' game. And I was like, that, I'm pretty bitter about that because it was just not even a thought. And that's, like, it wasn't even a thought to put us girls in sports because, I don't know. I, I still don't know what the reasoning behind that is. Um, and I'll probably always be a little bit bitter about it. But, like, you know, I don't think it was super intentional. So I think you have a right to be bitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's zero organized sports for the girls. 
a little bit for the boys. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that we understood, like, up to this point where we're talking about you traveling out east now for work, at this point you still have had zero exposure to anything organized, competitive, anything like that. Um, we would do a 5K. Uh, at first it was once a year and then twice a year for, like, my dad had a business and for his um, chamber of commerce they put on, like, a local 5K and he'd get free entries. So a couple of us could always, like, run it for free. So I would run a 5K in April, and I'd run a 5K in December. And it was literally, like, the week before, Dad would be like, have y'all been running? And we're like, no. He's like, y'all should go for a couple runs before this 5K. So you had your base set already by this point. Two 5Ks a year, whether you needed them or not. Yep, that's exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> So we can pick up then back in where you were. Sorry. Well, it always intrigues me because I'm from a we, – we are a family that grew up relatively devout Catholic, left it for a non-denominational Christian church and church hopped. And the common theme was the harder you try to hold on to something, the more it breaks through unpredictably afterwards. And so in our family, there was no alcohol for various reasons. And every one of the kids had at least a year – where we went off the deep end, so to speak, with partying or whatnot. All of those pieces of all the families we knew, you always kind of lost one, right? Like someone had their year, they just had to do what they were never allowed to. And because you weren't prepared for it, you didn't have the skill set. Suddenly you're on the East Coast. Did you seamlessly transition or did you have your wild year? Um, so I had, I say, I actually kind of had my wild, my, I was like a wild three months. Um, before I actually moved out, um, I had started dating this guy that worked for the same barn as I did. And he like broke up with me like four months later. Um, and I went really wild. There's a lot of like country dance halls there. And so I actually went and did a whole lot of dancing and, um, definitely had some wild, wild times there. And part of that Virginia move was like, okay, I need to kind of like remove myself from this. Um, I, I, I still think I probably did more drinking underage than, since I've been 21. You got it out relatively quickly. Yes. I had a pretty wild three months. And then I was like, okay, like let's get to real life. Um, that's one thing that I think my parents did really well that a lot of people don't do so well is despite being super isolated and like, um, you know, not in the culture at all, we're still like, they gave us a lot of like responsibility. They gave us, there's a lot of like accountability. So we all had, like, all of us are decent at, like, managing money and managing time and, like, setting goals and, like, moving forward. Like, none of us are totally incapable of, and I've seen that, where people, they're just so, the parents tell them constantly what to do. There's no, like, you know, personal level of, you know, any personal drive at all. Um, so my parents definitely did that right to where, you know, three months of kind of going crazy and, like, not caring, and I was like, okay, like... Let's get back to this. It's time to move on with real life. That's, I mean, that's relatively efficient. Yeah. yeah. To only lose three months. Yeah. So moving, so by the time I moved out to Virginia, I'd kind of, you know, been a little wild, been a little, done my thing. Um, and I was ready to work and ready to like move on with life. Um, there's still, I mean, I, I feel like some, now I'm kind of at the point where there's not as many cultural holes, but there were still... I mean, I've been kind of filling those in for the past five or six years where people mention stuff and I'm just kind of like, 
I'll Google that later. <laughs> like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, Are there any big ones that jump out at you? Like the biggest cultural holes when you sort of went off on your own? You're like, holy smokes, this is how the world works. And I had no idea. A lot of music. We like didn't mm. listen to any music. So music is something that like everybody kind of connects with. Everybody knows what songs were popular. Music, uh, TV and like movies. I suppose pop culture references were just ingrained in our society yeah. and not in yours none of them even hmm. i guess a big thing was um that first boyfriend i had we he had family guy we'd watch family guy a lot and there's so many <laughs> pop, like so many references there that i was just like totally and so there was a lot of explaining there i was like oh um yeah so i just feel like i anything and even now i'm kind of sensitive about like music movies i just i basically just have to say i don't watch movies like I don't spend any time with that, but it's really a lot of like, I've, I'm so like, like, I just don't have those 18 years of watching anything as yeah. a child to kind of like, oh yeah, that came out. Have you tried to play catch up or have you just said, you know what, that ship sailed. I'm just going to move on from here. Pretty much. Um, yeah. I've thought about the whole catch up thing. I've definitely, no, I don't think I even really thought about it. It was just like, what's the point? <laughs> There's too much. <laughs> There's too much to try to catch up on. I've got to be honest. I have never heard a backstory that better explained someone's athletic proclivities now. Your race habits make so much sense. You're cramming 18 years of competition into every single month of your adult life. Pretty much. That's how I feel. I think we're skipping ahead a little bit for people who don't know. I don't know if anyone races more than you. I don't know if anyone races a more varied array of races. Mm. I mean, last year you were constantly going from short course OCR to ultra back and forth, back and forth the entire year. And now it makes sense. You're doing everything. Yeah. I like once I found the competition, I had a I had a really hard time trying like I tried with horses trying to get into like kind of the competition world of that. And I found very quickly you have to have a lot of money. Your parent, your family has to have done this for a long time. And you have to have a lot of money, like a lot of money and time. And were two things that I did not have. So I tried very, like moving out to Virginia was a huge thing towards like going all in on horses. And I really quickly realized like, I can never do this because I don't have the money and I don't have the family that, you know, that kind of backing. Um, so when I found like OCR athletic stuff where it's like, it doesn't really matter where you came from, just kind of matters where you are now. And you can really hop in like. Just go. Did you find OCR before running? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. How? Um, I did a Tough Mudder in, back in, like, a year before I moved. I'd heard about Tough Mudders. A bunch of people were doing them. I was like, let's see what they're all about. So we went and did a 12-mile Tough Mudder. I made my sisters do it with me. And we, like, walked the majority of the thing of the course. But I was like, everybody says this is, like, life-changing and so hard. And I was like, this is a joke. Like... It's easy. Like, there were none none of the obstacles we couldn't do. It was just basic, you know, especially, like, being a kid, like, running around all day. It's kind of basic. Um, But then I was like, okay, Spartans are supposed to be harder. So I went and did a Spartan, and it was, like, an afternoon open wave. It's a hot day. And, again, I walked most of it. I, yeah, I walked most of it, and I was, again, like, people think this is hard? Like, maybe for your average person, but, like, this is kind of a joke. It wasn't until... I moved out to Virginia, and I went to, I wanted to get a full trifecta, even though it wasn't even in calendar year, and I did the sprint, the Virginia sprint there, and I ran, I would volunteer, because this, so I started volunteering also because I'm poor, I don't have the money to spend on these things, 
so I found out about the volunteering. I volunteered, but I said, like, hey, I want to run in, like, the first open wave. This was back when it was just elite and competitive. But I mm-hmm. ran in the first open wave, and I was like, I'm going to, like, really try to run this fast. And I got – I'm pretty sure I got first overall open. I'd have to, like, go and look back at that again. But I, like, really, like, did it fast, and I was like, that was really fun. Um, it's obviously a lot more fun when you do it faster. And that was where I first heard about the whole, like – elite wave thing so the next race i did um i went up to canada and did a beast in the elite wave and again like i walked the majority of it i'm trying that virginia sprint i guess was short enough that i probably didn't walk a whole lot there were a lot of people around so a lot of people to pass up but this this uh beast that i did i walked a lot but still got um i think i got second i led it for the first little bit and then I finished in second, and I was like, okay, this is... Very mountainous terrain. So walking isn't walking. This was actually... So this was the Ontario one, but I think it was a year that they didn't have it a ski resort. It was oh, a really? cross-country ski resort, maybe. So it was actually very flat, and everybody kept saying, like, it's a runner's course. I still walked a lot of it, but of course I would run if somebody was coming up, and, like, I would stay ahead of people. Um, this is Elite Wave? Yeah. Oh. So you just walked until someone would catch you, and then you'd run with them, and then walk? I'm not understanding how you walked and took second. Well, I would wa- I would take walking breaks, I guess. So there was no concept of any kind of pacing, mileage, any of that. So I would run until I felt like walking, but I was mostly just walking because I felt like walking. So if I saw somebody coming up, <laughs> like, oh, I'd take off running again. If that, like... My first question is... You said you did these Tough Mudders. These were in Texas, it sounds like. Yeah. And those were easy. And then you did a Spartan, and that was easy. And then you did uh, Virginia, and that was easy, pretty much. So what I like, what force – there was something about it for you, I guess, what I'm getting at. Like, you traveled to Canada to race. So well, I there found out there. that there was an elite wave, and there were, like, people – somebody at the Virginia race was telling me – he was – I was volunteering – at the bag check. And he was like, hey, I'm going to go watch, like, the first place people finish. And I was like, huh? Like, what's that? And he's like, there's, like, an elite wave. He was saying people, this is, like, he told me, like, people fly around the country to do these. They'll do, like, one on Saturday, fly to another place and do it on Sunday. And I was like, that's insane. Like, what? So that was the first, like, introduction to that. But I was, I ran that sprint, like, fast and placed well. So that was, I was kind of like, oh, I placed well. Like, maybe I'm decent at this. I should try some more um did you watch people the elites cross the finish line that day no i have no idea who they were i think he said like oh there's somebody running down there was like a there's some there's like a straightaway where you could kind of see them you know like across the hill say oh there comes um not i'm kind of curious to know who podiumed there because it was i don't know who it would have been um but no i still had zero concept of like any of that really what year was this so it's into 2017. Sounds like maybe Ryan Kent or somebody would have won the men's elite race. Yeah, or Megiddo. Or Megiddo, yeah. Small world. Keep going. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, so I did this Virginia one. I actually volunteered at West Virginia um, at the end of the summer. And that was another one. Uh, West Virginia, I think it was still the North American Championships. It was the North American Championships. And I was handing out T-shirts, and I tried to, like, hand out T-shirts to the first people that came. Again, people were all like, oh, the first people are finishing. And I was like, I don't care. I was trying to hand out T-shirts to, like, the first people that came across, and they were like, oh, they'll, like, they'll get them later. Like, they don't need them. And I'm like, 
who these people think they are? Um, again, I don't know who ran, won that one either, but I'm sure probably both of y'all might have been there. Robert Killian won that one. Robert Killian? Yeah. Um, yeah. I was there, yeah. It wasn't until, yeah, I went up to Virginia. Vermont, honestly, was the one that, like, kicked my – I went and did Killington, like, a weekend after the uh, Canada one, and that kicked my butt. I was like, oh, this is really hard. I think I got, like, sixth place there. And I was like, I died there. Were you training? What were you doing? I, before, over the summer, I had planned to, like, run some. There was a, a cross-country course for the horses. Like, they have their jumps set out there, and they do cross-country. Mm-hmm. And they said, like, the local team, they actually, the team from, so I guess the cross-country team from in town, had come and set up a 5K course out there on the horse. It's, like, horse property, which I guess a bunch of these races are at horse facilities. Um, so before I went to Canada, I had planned to run, but I was like not a runner. So I would go walking with my dog out there a bunch, but really not any running. But when they had that 5k course set up, I did go and run that course once before I went to Canada. So you're set. <laughs> that was my 5k a year. Okay. So we, we didn't know any of these things. We'd nope. see your name and results because everyone always keeps track of results at other races and new names and you research them. No one had any clue what was coming then. No. No clue. No. But if you're already going top 10 in events, it doesn't make it that shocking that you improved really quickly if if your training would consist of a 5K run prior. Um, when did training kick in? Training didn't kick in until beginning of 2018, but even then, like not only this was this like an introduction to sport and competition, it was a huge introduction to training, and that's kind of been the biggest thing for me to learn. Um, 2018 is when, well, very end of 2017, I moved out here to where I am now, and I got involved with Grit because they were putting together a pro team, and I was like, well, I've podiumed a couple times. Like, I want to kind of see how good I can do in this. Um, and so I ended up meeting them, and one of the first things I told them was like, Look, I've done okay so far, but I know, like, I like I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, can you please train me? Um, but again, like, training was very new. I'm not a, I mean, I'm a fairly disciplined person, but I'm not a, like, train every day, run, workout. Like, that was, like, nowhere. Like, I just kind of did them because they were fun. Um, so they started working with me. They had to kind of, like, convince me to come out. I was like, I can play on the obstacles all day, but I have I don't want to do these workouts and, like, running is hard. <laughs> um, so, but they started working with me in 2018. Um, I did a lot of races, mostly just, like, local races, you know, around the state. Um, I might have gone to, I think I went to Norams that year, possibly. Um, but it was a lot of just, like, local stuff and stuff that I could kind of handle. I really didn't... I, w- I started running then, but I would say I didn't really start, like, training running until the end of 2019, and that's what made the difference for 2020, where I can now actually, like, compete on some level. Well, I guess 2020 was a big was a big training year for me, so then 2021 was the, like... So are you the least experienced runner and exerciser and trainer in the sport? Possibly. At the high end? That's terrible news for the females, because you just took, what, third at OCR Worlds? Yeah, um, I was born to do this. Like, that's kind of what I come back to. Like, there is nothing that makes me feel more alive than, like, 
just running. I don't even, at this point, like, I don't even, 2020 was big for me because I was like, I don't even have to compete. I don't have to, like, have things to do and things to win. Like, I just like running and moving constantly. Um, so, yeah, and I'm only just getting started, so we're kind of. Yeah. And I would agree with that, that you were born to do this. We were talking about, I don't know if you rewatched the the race yet, but we were talking about your stride in Chicago. Yeah. You were born to do this. The, the way your body moves and functions is the way a body moves and functions that was designed to be doing that motion. And if you've only been doing this really for two years, maybe two and a half of training, then that is just natural occurring you know, function. Yeah. It, it wasn't taught. That's outrageous. The frustrating thing is, well, I don't know. It, And that's that's why... That's part of why I like end up doing everything is because I haven't found anything yet that I can't do. And so I did my first, I did my first ultra, like at the end of that 2017 year and it completely smashed me, but I was like, I did it. It was like the Dallas ultra. Um, so it was a 50 K, but I thought like, if I can do 30 miles, maybe I could do 50. So I did 50 miles, like a 50 mile trail run, like six months later and did okay in that. So then it was like. I'd heard of 100 milers, and I was like, that's insane. But when I did my first 100, um, and then quickly after my next two, I was like, I can do this too. (laughs) Like, there's nothing I can't do. Um, So it's hard to just like, oh, well, I'll pick one thing and focus on this when I'm still, like, I'm still not nowhere near the top of any one area. I'm going to jump around a little bit here and come back to this, but what do your parents think of all this? Um, they're, like, happy for me. Um, they don't, and they're definitely, like, proud of me. I don't think they really understand a lot of it. Um, but they're, I mean, they can tell I'm happy, so they're happy. Um, Will they, like, watch your race to have an idea what you're doing? Yeah, they actually, I sent them, so they live overseas now, so there's kind of, a, there's, like, a 13-hour difference, so it's hard to kind of... I think they've come to maybe two of my races. Um, but I sent them, like, the DecaFit Austin coverage from two weeks ago. And I sent it to them, and I was like, hey, like, this is my race if you want to watch it. And my mom was the one that responded, and she was like, wow, like, uh, she said something about, like, you're, you're like, really good. Like, they sure said your name a lot or something like that. And I was like, yeah, like, I kind of do decent at this. Um, you might not have been able, maybe, like beach volleyball or something you I don't think you could have picked another sport that was more different than what your upbringing was yeah. you're competing hard you're wearing practically nothing <laughs> and there's cameras on you and it's there's the genders mixed before and after yeah. and on course a bit was there any sort of social acceptance that had to go on with you out there in a sports bra and short shorts doing this um it took me a while to start wearing a bra and well short shorts came i i don't like pants so shorts were pretty easy but it i wore tank tops for quite a while it was almost i mean i was kind of worried about what my parents would say but also like everybody that i was still kind of friends with it would have like hugely taboo were were you super self-conscious and lacking confidence in that as well i was also yeah very self-conscious about it um but the more i got you know away from what I came from and more into the sport. Like they haven't really said anything. Um, my dad used to like kind of make comments about it, but he doesn't anymore. And so 
They sound cool. Yeah, they're they're really cool. I want to understand your progression of training, basically through like 2018 and now. If you could walk us through like a weekly outline back in 2018 when you started to train in quotes, and then maybe like kind of give us some bullet points along the way and what it looks like now, like how you've grown that way. I'm very curious. Um, yeah, so 2018, January 2018 is when I first showed up to Grit, and um, they had like this pro team tryouts. It was, I think it was just basically kind of, they do a lot of like, they do OCR sims where it's basically you run almost half a mile and then do an obstacle or a series of obstacles. Run half a mile, do an obstacle, and they have a lot of obstacles set up there. Um, and I did decent in that, like, and they liked me because I was, you know, I'm this like, I think it was 20, I think I was maybe 20 then. Um, and when I talked to Kenny, the owner of Grit, and told him, like, I need help, he was like, oh, yeah, like, we can totally help you. So he had to, he was like, you got to come out to the gym and work out some. Um, and that was, like, a huge, like, I don't, before coming to Grit, I was kind of anti-gym. I was like, gyms aren't real life. You're in there, like, just moving weight around, but you can't, especially after doing a couple of Tough Mudder Spartan Run, like, all these are, like, gym freaks, and they can't even, like, run on grass. Like, what is happening here? So I was kind of like, you know, just live an active life and make it work. Um, so kind of, like, turning me into a gym person was a struggle. Um, I had a boyfriend at the time that would try to get me to go work out with him. He would just go to, like, the local gym in town. And uh, every, like, I would try to, like, give a good effort, but didn't really, like, it was hard to, I guess, kind of hard to stay focused. Um and it didn't interest me. So Kenny started um, having me come out to grit and, like, giving me these workouts. Because all I wanted to do was the obstacles. And he's like, you got to, like, do regular workouts. Um, so he'd give me these workouts. And we'd kind of do them together because I probably would not have done them on my own. Um, we started running. Um, he was just trying to, like, establish a base, I guess. And that was hard to do because I didn't feel like running didn't like run. I kind of hated running the only reason I would run is because in obstacle courses there's obstacles you get to take a break um, and it's like on trail like I enjoy that um, so I probably I got a Garmin and that's like I have I looked back the first month I got I think in March I got 50 miles for the month or I might have hit a hundred I think I hit a hundred miles in the month of March and that was like up in like to that point that was my biggest run volume Um, those runs were probably, he tried to like prescribe me runs and to me, they were like confusing. I didn't get them. I didn't like it. All of it was so new. I was just like, I don't get it. So a lot of those miles were probably like the OCR Sims that they would do on Saturdays. I was like, I'll come out and do those. Like I'll run in between obstacles. Um, anyways, I know, I think I got a hundred miles that month of March and, so, which is not hardly any miles, and I couldn't really tell you what those miles looked like. Um, we would do some sprints on the track. He was trying to get me to do, like, heart rate stuff, so he's like, you know, keep it below a certain heart rate, but I was like, this is really slow at a lower heart rate. So, like, again, I was probably the most difficult person he's ever had to try to train because I was just like, this doesn't make sense, I'm out. Um, but I know I did 100 miles in that March, and then April is when I did that 50-miler, and that was the only reason I ran that many miles is because I was signed up for this 50 miler. Um, the 50 miler, I ran the first 17 miles straight, which was huge for me because I'd never run that distance before, like without breaking. Oh yeah. I had done, I guess I'd done like a half marathon, but I, um, I basically, so 
I guess up until then I would run like the bare minimum during the week if I was like forced to, and then I would kind of race on the weekends. So they had like, I know we did a terrain race in March. Um, the Houston Spartan was still happening because now it's not, now it's San Antonio, not Houston, but I did the Houston Spartan, um, kind of whatever like local mud runs we could find, I'd go do. And that was like, that was probably like really what the only training or the biggest training, um, all throughout 2018 was kind of a struggle to get me to run because I was just like I would only run with people as a general rule and oh actually I will say after that 50 miler my my IT band got screwed up so my knee was causing an issue so I didn't run hardly at all I would only just race on the weekends because my knee kind of like hurt um why would why would somebody who doesn't like running run a 50 miler because it's a challenge oh so even though it was something that you didn't like at the time the entire activity of running itself just because it was something new and a challenge that was enough yeah pretty much um part of it too was like i was kind of scared going into it but they said that there were eight stations every four miles and i was like i can run four miles so my plan was to run four miles stop in an aid station eat and drink run four miles stop in an aid station eat and drink that completely like again once the competition like we start from the start line i ran 17 miles straight without stopping at all and then I had to slow down. I know the last six miles, I think I walked and cried a lot. Um, but yeah, no, it was 100% just the challenge of something new. She walked and cried for six miles, got done, and you're like, I could do 100. <laughs> well, it's one of those. Makes sense. So I found the ultra the ultra running, I'm still not very good at it. But it, it because of the challenge of it, it draws me back, and I can't get away from it. Um how many hundreds have you done now? I've done eight. What's your fastest hundred time? Um, the two fastest ones have been ones that were like a 24-hour format, but it was kind of a or a 24-hour race, but a last man standing format. So you run four miles every hour. And I've done mm-hmm. both of those in like 17 hours, like 17 hours of running, but over 24 hours. Um, the only other one that's I did, the very first one I did in like 29 hours but I did it with my friend who was, like, dying. I, I say I could have probably gone faster. Uh, the, all the other ones I've done have been mountains, and those are not really a good, you know, fast time race. Those have been survival mm. for me. Um, but there's something about I like the challenge of, like, you really, like, it gets as low as it gets. But then as soon as you finish, it's like, that was awesome. Yeah. So you were talking about 2018 and – we got past your 50 miler and training kind of progression there. Yeah. So for the, for like three months after that 2018, I didn't really run at all cause my knee was bothering me and I knew nothing about like, knew a little bit about stretching, but really like nothing about foam rolling. Foam rolling was what ended up changing it for me. Cause I was like, Oh, I need to like foam roll my IT bands. Um, so I didn't really run for like the next three months and, um, just raced. Um, probably that summer end of that year is when I, started trying to fall into a little bit more of a run routine. Um, but still, like, definitely no, like, real quality. I just kind of run when I feel like it. So you're two years out, two years out from your first world championship podium, and you still haven't started training seriously. When did that change? And I will, I, I know when it changed because everything changed when it did. So kind of limped through 2018. I did, like, any local race that I would do, I could, like, basically hit the podium um, but it's, you know, local mud runs. Um, I went to Norams and I ran age group and I did well in age group. 
because, you know, it's age group. Um, and I actually did decently, no, I think it was 2019. My times were a lot better. Um, but again, like there was no real training. It was just racing because I like to race, but the training was a, it's still like an, is, is still like introducing the concept. Like I just, I, you know, I'm, I wasn't, I don't know. I feel like I'm really like lazy and like a really, like it's, but I also kind of think it's just introducing a whole new concept of like, oh, having to train for this, like so new. Um, it wasn't until, so 2019 again, I kind of did like the local Spartans. Um, we started doing like run challenges at the gym. And so I would try to hit like 100 or 200 miles in a month, um, like on the run challenge month. And I kind of started falling into a little bit more running, but um, it was still basically just like, oh, does somebody want to run? Like, I'll go run. I'll do a run on the weekends. Um, there, no structure. No structure at all. It wasn't until the end of 2019 that um, we were going to do a 100-miler over. So uh, I guess summer of 2019, um, Kenny and I were training for that, my first 100-miler. So we did a lot more running. Um, I still wouldn't really call it training. It was still just kind of running, like running period during the week. Um, I know we did some long runs. We'd go, the only elevation we have is like the bridge over to the beach. So we'd, you know, run the the bridge on Saturday mornings. Um, did that first hundred and was like, you know, terrible, but I was, it was doable. Um, and it was the end of 2019, December of 2019. Uh, we were going to do a hundred miler over New Year's and it was going to be that last man standing format. I was going to do it by myself. But more importantly, there was a teenager here that was going to do it on a team with, because you could do it as a team or solo. Anyway, she was like, I need you to like run with me. So she was, at that point, I guess end of 2018, I started working at the gym. So I was, you know, coaching the classes um, and working with the kids and stuff. Anyway, so December 2019, I ended up running with this girl that was planning to run 25 miles at this ultra. And I ran with her every single morning from like 7 to 8. And that was the, like that built a base for me that I had never had before running even some sometimes it was running sometimes it was like run walking it was very much at her pace but it built some level of an aerobic base that I 100% contribute like the next year you know the rest of it too um and that kind of got me into like the rhythm of like doing it every day because we can and we should um so 2020 I was planning to have like a big year because now I'm running I'm working out more, getting stronger, getting a little faster. And then, um, Uh Oh, computer just died. My laptop died. It does this fun thing where it literally says your battery is very low and then it shuts off. So we heard the, the beep. I don't remember what was happening. Oh, we were talking about running every day. Thinking about it. Like I literally, I feel like I spent like three or four years just kind of my, like spinning my wheels, like kind of in it, but not in it. But it was, I mean, it's just, I think it was a lot of just personal development helping, happening too, where I kind of had to like learn how to be an athlete, I guess is kind of the best way I can say it. Well, you had, again, 18 years of trial and error and learning, not there. You had to make up for it. And most of us grew up with other people telling us at practice yeah. <laughs> what the process is. Yeah. Even if we never fully understood it, it was drilled into our head over time. You had to do that all over the course of three years. Yeah. while competing yep so that's yeah that's kind of exactly what it was like just trying to figure out how to become an athlete um, plus you were navigating real life yeah and uh there was definitely a lot of stuff that went you know i mean 
2019, I guess. I'm really grateful that 2020 was an off year because end of 2019 was really rough for me, like personally. Um, so 2020 was a great kind of recovery year, give me a chance to uh, kind of like reestablish. Um, Is that something you want to go into or not go into? Not a whole lot. It doesn't really like affect me like athletically, but I did like get married and then divorce in 2019. Um, it was a pretty mm. messed up situation. And uh, again, like especially coming from my background, like I got married, planning to be married, did not work out at all. Um, so it was really hard to like make the decision to move on. Um, it was very necessary. Mm. But getting married at that age wasn't, wasn't like atypical that would have been totally normal right oh yeah getting married was yeah great and uh what was his background his background was actually like kind of similar to mine so it was part of why like we kind of hit it off I actually like met him at a Spartan race definitely moved out here for him um Mm. and it was supposed to work out it's supposed to be great um I just say like everybody has their personal stuff they're working through I think it's really important you like work through that and prioritize that you can't expect other people to um, can't expect other people to fix you or be okay with you not being fixed, like or not being in the progress of fixing. Like there has to be some kind of forward progress. Um, a lot of that blew up as I started getting better athletically and kind of finding myself. When I met him, I was very, I was completely new to all this. Like I thought he was a workout person and kind of is, but really not. Um, so I thought I was like, oh, this is like is it he knows all the races like all this kind of stuff um but as I kind of started finding my own way and like becoming my own person that didn't mesh so well with his just kind of wanting to sit tight where he was and do his thing um so there was a lot of it was hard because I think there was a bit of like jealousy of like I'm kind of actually like progressing and like there's growth happening and not so much for him especially if his background's like yours yeah certain expectations for a female in a relationship again and he had a lot of a lot to unpack I mean I think all of us that kind of grew up that way have on some level a bit of like bitterness confusion like there's a lot of just kind of lost yeah. which I always say though like it could have been so much worse like even though we had such like a weird upbringing like our parents loved us took care of us we had food we had you know like the basic necessities so I think it gives me like a very like different approach to life, but it's a very, I'm, I'm still like really grateful for that. Like, you know, it wasn't, obviously it wasn't the worst way to grow up. You sound like a loved kid. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Divorce is obviously not biblically viable and you come from a family that is very Bible based. What was that process like? Divorce comes with guilt in all these ramifications anyway, without thinking about your community and your family's reaction. Yeah, um, I think I was um, very fortunate to be in the community that I'm in now where um, a lot of people kind of have a practice marriage. A lot of people get married young, have a kid young, whatever, and later on in life they actually find, like they establish themselves, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the world that I grew up on in, you were definitely supposed to have that all figured out. Early 20s and like you're set. Hey, we all need a rust buster. As we call it, right? <laughs> Most people in the world now are on their second or third marriage, like, and people understand that people don't work out together. All the prayers, all the counseling, all the stuff, like, sometimes it just doesn't work. And as much as, like, okay, ideally you get married to one person, you stay married for the rest of your life, okay, that's fantastic. That doesn't work out because we're living in, you know, a modern world where people aren't perfect and 
that's not really like that valued either, whatever. Um, but thankfully I was like in a community where a lot of people were like, oh yeah, I had a terrible husband first too. And like you move on, like now they're happy with their first person, with their next person or their, you know, final person. Um, so I think, uh, it was very difficult for me to like come to terms with, but I had some very important people in my life that were kind of like, no, you are losing yourself um, to try to accommodate him. And um, that's not right. Um, and they were Christian people that I respected as Christians, as like, um, so yeah, I kind of had to make the decision. I probably cried every day for about six months and took a while to like emotionally and mentally recover. Um, which is why I think 2020 being an off year and just a time to just kind of run and do things on my own and not have to see a lot of people was Mm. ended up being kind of a blessing in disguise. Um, yeah. Um, with, as far as like my parents go, they were really, I mean, they love me. So they care about me. They were really big on like, can you get it an old, like they didn't want the whole divorce (laughs) thing. And I was like, like, I'm fine with it. I'll, I'll deal with it. Um, Short-term divorces are sometimes almost scoffed at. You had very little marriage time. It's like get over it kind of thing where like a 40-year divorce is weighty. But there are alternate complications that come with a very short early marriage because it really, really changes the direction of your life in a way that leaves you feeling very aimless at a young age thinking this was supposed to be my forever. My future was set and I'm starting over. Yeah. Did you pour yourself into training because of that? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I think it was, to me, it was almost, I had started, so this guy that I was with, he had, he'd been doing it for years and doing it like totally as a hobby, drank a lot, had fun. They would like, yeah, they would just kind of like party and have fun at these. Um, and he said the first year when I was like doing all these local races, he was like, if you keep doing all of these, you're going to burn out. Like everybody burns out after a year. And I was like, no, like I really enjoy these. Like, it's not just like trying to hang out with friends and that kind of thing. Um, so it would, there was starting to be a lot of like pullback, like, oh, well, you're spending all your time wanting to like run and do races. And I was like, no, like I'm pretty loyal to you as a person, but like, this is my hobby and this is my interest. And like, I haven't had a chance to do any of this and like, kind of like to do it, but I had started to pull back some and started to like, cause when I had met him, I was like, I want to give this a go for a year and see how I do. And then I was like, Oh, people make this their whole life. That's ridiculous. Like, we'll just move on. Um, and then I started realizing like, Oh, there's kind of like an athlete side to this. Um, so I started to pull back a lot and then part of I mean, yeah, when I, when all that went down, it was definitely like, I got nothing else to do on a weekend. I'm going to run. Um, I definitely did races. And then through 2020, it was a lot of long runs, long bikes, bike runs, run bike runs, just kind of, you know, there were no, it was, yeah, it was like a whole, like starting over. I was like, I have nobody really to answer to. Like, I can just kind of do whatever I want. And this is what I want to do. Um. And I still feel, I struggle now with feeling a little bit behind, like, like I'm 25 years old now, I should have my life a little bit figured out, but I also kind of like started at 18 and then restarted at like 22. So it's almost like I had a second chance and now almost like a third chance at life. Um, So I'm just kind of still trying to get the most out of it. Mm -hmm. Well, in some ways you're behind, of course, but in other ways you are way ahead. 
in finding all of this at the age you did, being 25 and in the fitness industry somehow already as your career, plus racing. I mean, you're way ahead of where I was in this sport. Sure, I'm 38 now, but I didn't find this till I was 33, for example. And in some ways, things are looking pretty good, I would say. When did you ingest meat, Kirk? Uh, 2017. So you were how old? What does that make me? I don't know. Four years younger, five years younger. So like 33, 34. 34. Not that we're here to like build you up, Chris, but I mean, you got 10 years and then you can, you can come into the sport when Kirk did and meet your forever. You know, that's true. A lot of time. It's outrageous what you've gone through and it's outrageous how young you are. So you had 2020 of the ultimate base building progression year where life dealt you a tough hand and you came out of it with 12 years of steady volume. I mean, 12 months of steady volume and workouts. And we saw the final product, not, not that you were a final product, but we saw the final product of the previous two years in 2021. Yeah. But none of us knew this was coming. I think I commentated three or four of your races. And I didn't know anything about you. <laughs> other than like this girl came out of nowhere and she is dominating people that are supposed to be really good at this. And knowing your backstory obviously puts things into perspective. But we just suddenly saw this person appear. We had known of your name, but suddenly you were a major player. And we kept waiting for, like, the backslide. We didn't realize that this was, like, level one of what Chris is going to become. And it was amazing to watch. But now knowing the backstory puts a little bit into perspective why you haven't kind of stagnated in your progression. Yeah, yeah. And I, I listened to – I started listening to podcasts, you know, a couple years ago. And I've, like, listened to all these podcasts and I hear what everybody says. And I listen to y'all and y'all talk about, like, oh, the – mid-season burnout and last season and or the end of the season and all these builds and all this stuff and I'm like I don't yeah I'm still I and I think about that y'all mentioned in one podcast about like oh you know in college like we raced every weekend or in high school we raced every weekend it was no big mm -hmm. deal and I was like that's me multiple times a week at times yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. that's me well, I think there's two important things to remember the first is there's exceptions to every rule like for everything we say on here that we firmly believe, we also know personal examples that don't need to abide by that. And the second is you are young, both age-wise and athletically. And maybe at some point those principles are going to have to apply to you. And maybe they won't. But either way, you're technically like a middle or high school runner right now. And we ran three hard workouts a week and raced every week, sometimes twice a week in those times. So it's really not like out of form for what you're doing right now. Mm -hmm. That's what I, that's kind of what I've come to the conclusion of. Like. So Bracken said nobody knew it was coming. Did you know it was coming? Did you know what was coming for him? Yes and no. Um, I'd, I'd had like decent success the past two years just at like local races. So I knew I was kind of like at the top of some game, but it wasn't until, it really was not until Rose Wetzel came out to Texas um, for the Austin race in May. And... I had never, even when I, I guess when I went to OCRWC, I went to Norams. I'd done age group for an entire year, and then I did do pro, but I was, you know, kind of like top 10, and I was like, clearly I have, like, room to grow. Um, but Rose came out and ran the Austin Super, and I ran with her the entire time. And she would pull ahead on some of the uphills. As soon as we hit an obstacle, I would come into it after her and out of it before her. And racing against her, we ended up getting second and third because we both missed the spear 
But racing with somebody that's like at the top was a huge eye-opener for me where I was like, wait, I can actually like hang with her? Um, and that's when I decided to sign up for West Virginia. Um, and also after 2020 was when I started doing Savages. And I had done decent at Savages, but I just started doing more of them, I guess. So that's where I kind of came onto like the Savage thing because they were the only race that happened near the end of 2020 or the through 2020, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was that Savage and then... Racing Against Rose was a huge, like, oh, this is, like, one of the top level. Like, she has all these podiums. And I was like, I was running with her. And that was where I was kind of like, okay, I think I probably need to put myself, like, out on the real level. Um, So I didn't really see that coming. But I also, you know, had seen the kind of steady progression. So Those moments are necessary for an athlete. We all, everyone, has that moment where you finally face that person you've been watching for years. and, And you get that, oh, I belong. Yeah. And I shouldn't say everyone gets that. Usually people get it that I don't belong. I have a, what's your moment, Bracken? I'm curious. I have one. The first true one in this sport, I think, was in Killington in 2012, where Hobie and Cody disappeared from the start at, at World Championships. But then a group of us, Marco Bedard was mm-hmm. the reigning champ. He was an Olympian in biathlon. And then they had this guy... I'm going to buy Sebastian Monet. He was the speedster from Canada. And then Ben Nephew, who was a professional mountain runner and trail runner from Innovate. We were all in a pack running for third place. And I, I dropped them on the last climb and the last descent. And I was, you know, living in Wisconsin, running 50 foot ski hills all summer. And I dedicated my life all summer to it, but still didn't know if I could actually run. And when I got mm-hmm. out there, I was like, oh my goodness. Like the, the top's still way above me, but I can be the best of the rest for now. And so, yeah, Ben Nephew in particular, I had watched him win trail races for years. He was sponsored by Innovate and trail running next to him, which just felt like probably like Rose, like, oh my goodness, I'm running next to this person who's, who does this for a living. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those moments are sweet. Then you're What's like, yours, you're like Oh, mine is both involved Matt Novakovich <laughs> of all things. <laughs> it was 2017 and I was carrying sandbag next to him and we got a photo after it was all done, I didn't even realize it was him. And I have a photo next to Matt Novakovich. And I passed him there. And then again in Palmerton later that year, I passed him going uphill before I went off course. And I thought, like, I should pass, pass the bear who's an uphill runner going uphill. Maybe I belong here. That was my moment, yeah. And you're never the same. Never the same. So um, I, I wanted to ask about your, like, your training a little more because you do these long races – You've trained these hybrid races. You've obviously had success. You almost landed on the podium this last weekend. I mean, you were how many seconds off? 50, 40 or 50 seconds. Okay, which is really close in a high rocks. Um, Have you really focused on anything yet? Like, do you really know your top end potential in any of these things we've talked about yet? As far as like, oh, like any focus period of time on training, I guess what I'm getting at. Not really. Um. I, I um, okay, let me, let me think about that. Um, I guess 2020, I did a lot of like long efforts that gave me a lot of like confidence in just like basic, like endurance, I guess. Um, the strength has just kind of been like a steady build. Um, I'm kind of surprisingly strong for how scrawny I am and I'm not entirely sure where that came from, except like, I guess here at the gym, like there's kind of two guys that I always try to keep up with 
Um, so I'm always like, I'm fat, or I've, I've always been faster than them. And then I try to like use their weights. So I'm like on the same level as them because they're always like, Oh, you would use the women's weights. Like, no, I'm using the men's weights and I'm still keeping up with you. Um, so I guess there's a little bit of like home competition. Um, I don't, I don't really know where the strength has come from. I've definitely had to build it and like, I completely lost it a couple months ago and that scared me cause I've never been that weak, but I guess I would say I just kind of like consistently move and um, yeah. Uh, so the strength, there's little to no concrete base of anything. Um, I came in when I first started doing these, I could do handstands. I could like handstand walk. And that was like the only reason I had any upper body strength at all. So I think that's part of why like the obstacles came fairly easily is because I had some upper body strength. Um, as far as like speed, I'm really not fast. And that's something I'm like trying to work on. Beginning of 2021, 20, last year, I started doing sprint workouts once a week for the first time ever. And my speed like drastically improved. Um, so doing like speed workouts obviously helps, but have I spent like any significant time building that? No, um, and I'm not extra consistent. Um, I now run pretty much every day. Some days I do like do bleacher runs, we'll do bridge runs, we'll do, you know, whatever. But there isn't really a whole lot of structure. It's just kind of whatever I can fit in. Um, my schedule's a little like all over the place. So I just kind of fit it in and then I just kind of fit it around races. Like um, I'm doing like a small race this weekend uh, one that Grid is putting on, like an obstacle course race. Um, and that doesn't really take a whole lot going into it, but I'm doing a hundred miler in two weeks. So like leading up to that, I'm doing like some longer runs and a lot of like just basic leg workouts, just because I found pretty early on, like basic leg strength goes a long ways in endurance running for a long time. Um, so. Well, you're actually outlining exactly what I'm kind of getting at, which is you've had relative success in hybrid racing and ultras in the gamut of Spartan races you've done a high rocks and then a hundred miler within a month sounds like that's the plan twice now twice well, now I, okay well i did a hundred miler two weeks ago and then i'm doing another one in two weeks wait two weeks ago uh three weeks make that three so two weeks before the north american high rocks championship you did a hundred miler i'm telling you i was born to do this that's all i that's all i you're can born say to recover life. too my goodness i eat a lot I sleep a lot. Well, I don't really, I don't sleep enough, but I'm always. Listen, we all eat a lot <laughs> and a lot of us sleep a lot. And it does not mean we recover from a hundred miler for in two weeks to be able to do a high rocks competition. I will say like, and it probably comes from not having a background in sport. I do not push myself to the max, like hardly ever, if ever, I like kind of always keep a reserve. Um, I'll have, I mean, even people here at the gym will be like, oh, well, you know, they injured themselves, they hurt themselves, and they're, like, having this major pain somewhere in their leg. And I'm like, why are you here working out if you're in that much pain? Like, I don't understand people that get hurt and keep going. Or people will say, like, oh, well, like, I'm running and I have this, like, knee. My knee hurts constantly. Like, so I don't know if it's just kind of a, like, when things start to hurt too much, I back off because I've definitely had that. Like, even the first two years I was, like, trying to run, um, the course that I ran the 50-miler at, I did a 50K there the following year, and it's a very flat and, like, gravel course, and it screwed my IT bands both times. And so I basically just kind of took 
two months off without really taking it off, without really, like, entirely, like, oh, this is a problem, but, like, seeing it as a problem, I, like, way, like, held back. Um, it's the same, though, even, like, when I race, I don't think I ever really go, like, all out. I give considerable effort, but I'm always like, okay, I need to be able to breathe. Like, I need to be able to still, like, sustain something. Um, so I think, I don't know if that, like, plays into the whole recovery thing, but I I keep, I don't know, I feel like I'm always holding back a little bit. Um, also, that's, like, I do a decent amount of, like, stretching and foam rolling and just as, like, maintenance. Maybe that helps. Well, there certainly is something to a 90 or 95% effort versus 100 in terms of recovery. But at the same time, 100 miles is 100 miles. Mm-hmm. Damage is damage. Yeah. It's impressive. Yeah. Well, I think what I was sort of getting at with that line of, like, thought was, okay, obviously we're in both ends of the spectrum in short amount of time, which, like, I don't know, logic would say you can never be your best at any of them if you're doing all of them, right? And maybe that's not the case with you because you potentially are this genetic freak. But there may come a time in which you decide to specialize or decide to do something very focused. Do you have any inclination of what that might be at all now that you've been racing and training a little more? I'm trying to save the ultra stuff for when I'm older because I recognize I'm pretty young to be doing the ultra stuff. And I feel like I still have potential to get faster. I mean, 200 milers in a month. Totally saving it. Yeah, you're right, right, right on. I said I try. I try. Oh, fair. <laughs> fair. fair. Um, these ones just kind of came up, and they're you know close by. They work. Um, so I think I'm actually leaning towards more of the shorter, faster stuff. Um, this year I had planned to do my first 200 miler, but I think I'm going to defer it so that I can do the Savage Series. So I think that's me making a choice. I am still going to do another. 400 milers but just not the 200 like we're kind of backing off a little um and then i because i want to be competitive in the now that i've found like the you know kind of that like elite level of spartan competitive spartan savage i want to kind of explore that a little bit more um and then i'm trying to save the hundreds but this year turns out to be a good year for me in big hundred milers and i'm gonna Hopefully, Grand Slam, which is where you do, like, four out of the five biggest hundreds in a single summer. So I'm, like, I'm in for three. I'm waiting on the fourth, so it's pretty much. Which ones are those? Um, I'm doing Leadville. I am doing um, Old Dominion, which is out in Virginia. Wasatch in Utah is the last one, and the one I'm waiting on is Vermont 100. And what are your uh, goals Western States is the other one, and I will not be able to do Western States. <laughs> I'm not there yet. <laughs> I'll wait a couple years for that one. I would like to get, well, this year I definitely need to get a sub 24-hour, like, straight. Um, mainly just finish. Um, 100 milers for me, like, I guess they've always kind of come at times in my life where I kind of needed, like, 100 miles of just being out on my own. Um, so they're kind of, like, I just enjoy the experience of them. Um, and the number one goal is finishing. I'm not competitive at the mountains, but... I like the mountains. I like the challenge of it. So I guess the goal is to kind of maybe by the end of the year get more competitive at hundreds by doing more of them. If you had only one year left of competition, and it was this this year, let's say in December, you had to run the last race of your life and you needed to be a world champ, 
what form of race would you choose? Your absolute best form of racing. It would be a deck of mile because I'm deck really of good mile. at that. Of all um, the races you've done, that's your best form of racing. Probably. It's the perfect amount of like fitness because I'm decently fit, but also running. <laughs> so your plan is to run f- the four of the five 100-mile races, <laughs> and you want to bump to 200. And your best version of running is 160 meters at a time in between fitness stations. Yes, because I'm getting good at sprints. I'm getting good at sprints. Um, but it's so short. Like, if that were the race I were to pick, no, I'd pick something else. Um, the one that I would pick, can I pick, like, a trifecta world championship? Sure. That's kind of three races, but that's probably what I would pick. Stage racing is something you're made for. Yeah, I think I'd, yeah, trifecta world championships. That, I think that's my world championship. So the point is you don't know yet. Because you're good at almost all of it and you haven't explored them enough. Because your two answers are a 20-minute race and two days a three-stage race. Yeah. Okay. It's a good situation to be in. I think that actually answers the question. Yeah. Well, if we're talking about races then, um, like what are we all looking at this year? Are we going to have enough time to list them all off? Like what is the, what are the big bullet points this year for you? Actually, can I step back? How many times did you race last year? Um, if I had to guess, there's 52 weekends. I probably 40, at least 40. Okay. What was your shortest race? If Deca Strong counts, it'd be Deca Strong. Deca Mile. Um, so, Savage. Or just any kind of, like the three mile. And what's your longest race last year? I did a race in Wyoming that was, okay, yeah, no, a race in Wyoming that was 111 miles. And what race distance did you race the most often, do you think? Probably like the, uh, like a 10K. Okay. All right. So back to Kirk's question. What's your plans for this year? Um, this year, I actually have, I feel like this is the best planned year I've had yet. Okay. Um, I'm focusing on strength. I'm getting fat. I'm getting strong. Um, minus this 100 miler, like that'll take it, put a dent in it. But I, high rocks. I'm doing two more high rocks this, near the beginning of the year. Good. Mm-hmm. I'm actually glad to hear that. Yeah, so that ends in May. So that's my that's my like strength. Um, Spartans, like I can just kind of throw them in, and as long as I'm like staying strong and staying slightly fast, Spartans just kind of happen. So I'm going to before the end of that high rock season, I'm doing uh, both the Savage Race and the Spartan Race series kicks off. So I'm going to do I'm doing both series. The full series. Yes. And that's, yeah, that's why I'm deferring my 200 mile. So I'm kicking off the Savage and the Spartan series in March. Um, and then those will kind of like continue through the summer-ish. But uh, my strength is through April. And then starting in June, I start doing hundreds. And I have hundreds through, well, I have like 100 a month, basically. And you'll wedge in the Savages and the Spartans in there just as training, almost? They're, they're training fun. Like, Active recovery. Yeah. Sure. As long as I'm staying strong and, like, staying running, to me, like, in my mind, the Spartans should not be a difficult, like, that should be a, that's just par for the course. Like, that just happens. Um, so it'll be a summer of hundreds with those extra races. Like, this, you know, the Spartan and Savage kind of, you know, trickle in. And then um, we're ramping up at the end of the year for, um, oh, uh <laughs> I haven't really talked about this. I'm not entirely sure that this is what, how it's going to go, but um, obviously I'll do OCRWC in September, and then I'm looking at 
World's Toughest Mudder, um, and then also okay. the DECA Championships, which, again, they're kind of two weeks apart, but I think I've proven that, like... In the wrong direction, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So slow first, and then the fast, yeah? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, once you do the slow and you're out there for 24 hours, 10 minutes is nothing. I look at it the opposite, but the sting is so sharp comparatively. Um, I did enough of it this past year of the ultra and then the short, and mm-hmm. I don't think it like scientifically affects my performance at all. I did a 100-miler one week before I did a decafit, and my time was one minute faster than when I had done it without 100 miles so you were good and warmed up yeah thanks you know 100 miles uh so i've tried to like i'm trying to be slightly smart about it but i really think i've kind of proven to myself that i can do it all until i can't so well a question that's popping up in my mind now just as i'm listening to your entry into the sport and now all these races that are close to one another um do you still look at racing as training as in, is that built in as part of your training plan and stimulus you need to like, be ready for more races later? Yes, 100%. Like, how do you look at that? It's probably maybe placebo. Um, but to me, like, doing a competition gets me like lit up and ready to work out. And I have a hard time if I don't race. There's, not a, lot, there's a lot less incentive to like work out. Um, if I never had to race again or if I never if I had if I stopped racing and just trained I would probably shoot myself but if I stopped training and just raced like I would be just fine also if if I didn't have to choose between one I'd be totally fine I don't I don't know if I that probably doesn't um I guess it's kind of like I just like to move I like to be active races are like the most enjoyable outlet for me but I just kind of like to keep moving um so to me, it's like an enjoyable outlet. It's not, I don't put, I don't put, I put little to no pressure on any of my races. That's one thing that probably, probably plays into this, probably also plays into the whole not giving 100%. Like any race I'm doing, I'm like, okay, I'm doing this because I think I could be decent at it. But I went into High Rocks this weekend, like thinking, knowing I could make top 10. Other than that, zero expectation. Like it is what it is. Scale of one to 10, how nervous were you? Zero. <laughs> So you're just cool as a cucumber always, which makes sense how this might be sustainable, doesn't it, Bracken? Yeah, we were talking on our last episode on how often we can race. Mm-hmm. I talked about how one of the reasons I can't race crazy often is because I have to work myself up to get myself into a place where I'm willing to like go through anything. And, and you're unencumbered by that. You're like, I'm not going to care. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you don't have to get up for it. So it doesn't cost you mentally. I think that's, that has a lot to do with it. Um, and that's probably just still like me developing, like as a competitive athlete, like I still feel like I'm so new to this. I shouldn't expect any certain results. Um, I expect my performance to be well, like I will definitely evaluate like my performance, like, Oh, I really need improvement there. Um, really felt bad, felt good, whatever. But when it comes to like placement or results, it's, it's so out of my control to begin with. And then especially with where I'm at, like, I, I don't expect anything, I guess. There's freedom in that. I miss those days. I never had those days. Sure you did. Like, if you were, like, I was a big fish in a small pond growing up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, so I won every single race until sectionals. 
And when you're expected to win and be the best, there's always that pressure. I was more nervous for those races where I was the favorite than before I had any expectations. So like, there's some freedom in that. I have a feeling that might change. If it doesn't change for you, that would be a really huge key. It, it almost started to change some when I got involved here at Grit. And now I go to a race and everybody's like, good luck, you're going to do so well, you're going to crush. Like All this stuff, and it almost starts to put that pressure on. But I think I'm pretty good at like kind of separating it and like, we'll see how it goes. I pro- it's probably kind of a coping thing where I'm like, it is what it is. You know, obviously I would like to do well. It'd be great if I win. Is that part of why you still volunteer at every race? Do you think? To keep a little sense of, oh, I'm not one of the pros. I'm not one of the elites. I'm just out here doing it. Or is it purely just a, I'm saving money? It's 100% of saving the money. It's 100% <laughs> like, I enjoy it. Like, I think it's really cool. In some ways, yes. I guess it's kind of a, like, I don't take myself so seriously. Like, I don't need to, like, go rest and recover. I don't need to do a cool-down run. Like, all this stuff, like, sure, I'll hop in and, like, help hand out T-shirts. Like, so it, I think it's a little bit of, like, I'm not at that level and, like, I don't pretend to be at that level. Um, it's absolutely for free race credits. It's a game-changer. Um, and then, I mean, I, I enjoy it just, you know, regardless of racing or not racing. I said this on the broadcast at High Rocks this past weekend, but a guy I work with, Rob Pettyjohn, was going after his age group world best time. Yeah. And he's there at the end, and I'm cheering him on on wall balls. And I look to his right shoulder, and the person counting his wall balls is you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you were volunteering at High Rocks, and your race was starting yeah. in under, what, 80 minutes from then? Yeah, I think we stopped like an hour before us. No, yeah, 15 yeah. minutes before So, so you, you volunteered on your feet actively doing something up until and you had to start warming up for, for your race. And that is just not something the typical competitive athlete would even consider doing. Again, it just I, I almost started laughing in the middle. Like, of course, Chris is right there counting my guy's reps because why wouldn't she be before the biggest race of the High Rocks calendar so far? Yeah. I don't know if it's a, I don't really know what it is, but I feel like a pretty strong sense of like, um, like they need help and why would I not help? Like, and I guess it's just kind of a sense, I mean, like contributing in some way, but also like, it's one of those, I mean, they can't really carry on the competition if they don't have people counting the wall balls. So when they started saying over the loudspeaker, like, Hey, if you're a coach here, whatever you're sitting around, you want to count wall balls, like we need help. And I was like, I can do that. Like, I'm just standing around watching the competition. Like, um, And then it's also like I don't think sitting or thinking about the race or spending any amount of time like trying to prepare three hours out is really going to make that big of a difference. Like I made sure to keep drinking water. I like had a, a little a, like a protein bar thing. So I was definitely thinking like, okay, I want to make sure I'm still drinking, want to eat some, thinking ahead to the race. But – I guess maybe I just don't overthink it. We're like, I don't need four hours to be geared up for a race. And inherently, we're selfish. We are inherently takers at races. Most of the top-end people get entries and get something special for it, and then they win money at it. Like, you're only costing the race money. So I suppose there is some sort of giving back that maybe we should do more of. You said it. (laughs) (laughs) How do you not respect that? It's probably the only time I've seen you 
again, I don't know you, but like do anything other than just bubbly personality is when you've been asked about that. You, there's like this little bit of sass that comes out and you're like, yeah, honestly, I think everyone should be doing this. And you kind of look at the camera like talking to you. <laughs> but I'll, I'll say like, yeah, I, I, I don't understand people that my, my biggest thing is not even just, okay, if you like, if this is a big race for you, if this is like stressful, like, of course, like take your time. But there are so many people that complain about things not being run well and how bad the races are doing. And I'm like, it's just kind of a niche sport. Like, it's not a professional deal. As much as you can be a pro, you're not really a pro until you're actually living off of it. Like, nobody's really pros here. It's pretty much a hobby for, like, 95% of us. Like, I think maybe I'm just... Uh, Probably more like 99 More than that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so to me, it's like, this is a hobby. Now, granted, I think it's fantastic. People take their hobby seriously. Like, people put in so much time and effort. Like, that's fantastic. But, you know, a little kind of dose of reality. Like, this is a very niche sport. It's really not established. If you want to see it do well and if you want to see races run well, you wouldn't hurt to contribute. So, like, it's kind of one of those. Um, so, yeah, I get... I mostly get sour about people that, like, complain about it. If you're going to complain... You should do something. So. You know how you've ended recent episodes, Bracken, which we need to do here quick, but um, you always say, tell the people something they need to hear today. And I think Chris walked herself into that without even asking the question. Yeah. There it is. And I'm just sitting over here cringing like, oh, I put out an episode where I criticized the state of the sport, and yet I didn't offer what I could do to better <laughs> Like, every, not everybody's the same. Like, everybody's at different places, and this is just right. some are just better people than others, Chris. And this you're is just where I find myself. Better, better person than Bracken is. That's it. Also, I have not been around for as long of a time. Like, we're all in different places. I don't expect everybody to have the same train of thought, but that's just kind of where I'm at. Well, I can't fault. I can't find any fault in your train of thought, and it, it has me thinking maybe there's some more giving rather than taking and complaining that i can do we can do we all can do i don't think it hurt anybody well have we missed anything with you chris i don't think so nothing we uncovered every stone might be a few but i think we're good well you cannot i mean you've alluded to it but you cannot uh, ascend in the sport the way you have without people assisting along the way so is there anyone you want to take the time to give a little thanks to I will definitely, probably, I mean, I guess I'll kind of start, like, my parents definitely, like, made me who I am, and I will always be grateful for, you know, despite, and I feel like some of some of my story is kind of um, disparaging towards them, and I don't want it to be that way. It's my experience, and so I want to share it, but i very grateful for my parents, my family. Um, and then I will, I mean, grit fitness has been a huge factor in this, and uh, you know, grit fitness being Kenny Stanford has been probably the biggest. Um, he's just been the most like, I guess he's kind of the first person that believed in me, maybe. And he's kind of helped me believe in myself. Um, so I, he's not just like trainer boss. He's also like been a really like great friend throughout all this. So very grateful to him. Kenny and then, yeah, my community here at grit, um, the whole group of people here have definitely helped me develop as an athlete, as a person. And, um, yeah, it's been good. Good. Well, I think there's going to be a few more people that believe in you other than Kenny after these uh, last performances and after chatting with us. I'm a believer. 
All right, Chris, my last question then is you said you're doing two more high rocks, Vegas being one. I assume it's world championship. What's the other? I'm going to do Dallas as devils. I'm going to do it for fun. Oh, who are you, who are you teaming up with? I'm teaming up with a guy here from the gym, uh, Johnny. He, I'm not going to say we're like going for like the world record co-ed, but like we're hoping to be pretty competitive in co-ed. And I don't Uh-oh. think we'll be terribly uncompetitive. Um, yeah, so we're going to do doubles in Dallas. And then as long as my time holds, because I would definitely like to stay in that top 15 mm-hmm. for uh, Vegas. So, yep. Did, did you see um, Bracken's eyes gloss over as you were telling him that? You going to come do doubles there? No, no, he's saying that we, Callie and I just got the American record and he's... Oh, that was the American record? Because you didn't break the world record. Correct. Oh, did you got it? Okay. Well, I'm not saying we're coming for it. I mean, you might as well. We're going to try to be competitive. This is my no-pressure approach. (laughs) That's a very Uroglowski approach there. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for coming on, for being really forthcoming about some difficult topics. And I hope that everyone got as much out of it as Kirk and I did today. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me on. Thank you for all that you do for the sport because you do not volunteering, but you do other stuff. So I appreciate that. You just working a jab there at us, and you're a thank you. <laughs> that didn't sound like a jab thank to me. Thank you for what you do. You don't do this, but the you other. No, I'm things... saying I don't want to feel make you feel guilty for not volunteering. Thank you for what you do. Do you're killing it, crushing it. All of us really appreciate y'all. Well, thank you. It was great getting to know you a little bit today, Chris. Well, thanks, Chris. Of course.